It was 22 years ago when we moved to Marion. We began to look for a church. We had rather simple criteria for the church that we would choose. We wanted a church where we could find great programs for our children. And uh, so we looked for a strong children's program and a strong youth program. And our second criteria was that we could be a part of a small group. We had been part of one in the church that we came from in Pennsylvania, and we knew how important that was, just as you heard Shelley say. We knew how important that was to our spiritual formation. So we wanted a church where we could have that experience. And the Lord closed doors everywhere else in town and opened them wide here at College Church. We knew this was the place where God wanted us to be. We had no idea that for the last 14 years we would get to sit under the ministry of one of the best preachers that I know. That was just a cherry on the top. But this has been a wonderful experience for us, a wonderful church for us to be a part of. It's, It's given us what a church should give us. One of the ongoing conversations that our church has had, and I think it was going on even before we arrived, but I know we heard it from the very beginning of our time at College Church. I wonder if I could get a bottle of water. Was that we wanted to be a church that could be as comfortable ministering to the campus as we could to the community. And Steve will remember there were ongoing conversations about how we wanted to be that kind of a church. And I can tell you that I have never, in the 22 years that I have been here, seen our church reach that point where we are equally comfortable in either direction. And it really doesn't seem to be as much of an issue now because it's so much a part of who we are as a congregation. So this word of commendation to you and a challenge to make sure that continues. But since you've done so well, I didn't think you would mind if I chose as the text for my final sermon to you the words of a hooker from the other side of the tracks. (laughs) I speak, of course, of Rahab. Thank you, Tamara, for reading, as you always do so well. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, And yet, as you look for Rahab through the Bible, what you find is that she keeps showing up, her name keeps being mentioned, and whenever it's mentioned, it's always in the most commendatory terms. Right from the beginning, Joshua knows that he is dealing with someone who's special, and so he gives permission. Contrary to the very clear instructions that God had issued to the Israelites, he gives very direct permission that Rahab and her entire family should be spared among all the Canaanites in Jericho. And later, after Jericho is defeated, in chapter 6, verse 25, we find that Joshua actually allows Rahab and all her family to live among the Israelites there in the camp. We see this elevated place that's given to Rahab by the author of of Joshua, who writes, I think, probably several generations later. You'll notice that there are only two names provided for people in this chapter. Now, in Hebrew narrative, that's one of the literary devices. If you want to emphasize a person, you give their name. If you don't want to emphasize them, you leave their name out. Only two names. You notice who they are. Joshua and Rahab. What are the names of the spies? We're not giving them. What's the name of Jericho's king? We don't even know that. The author of the book of of Joshua also 
places Rahab in a prominent role by the speech that she has in verses 9 through 13. Just look again at that speech. Notice with me a couple of things about that speech. It comes right in the middle of the episode related to to the city of Jericho and the conquest of Jericho. The most prominent place in the chapter is given to Rahab's words. You notice that those words are in direct speech rather than just being told what she said. We actually hear her say those words. That's another Hebrew literary device to accentuate a message. But look at the length of the passage. Look at the length of verses 9 through 13. One commentator has pointed out that this is one of the longest uninterrupted speeches of a woman in the entire Bible. And it's a hooker from the other side of the tracks. The rabbis had a lot of fun with Rahab. One of them considered her to be the wife of Joshua in a subsequent time. Others said that she was the ancestress to eight prophets, including Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Somebody described her as one of the four most seductive women in the Bible. Someone else as one of the four most beautiful women in the Bible. But the rabbis also understood that she was the ideal proselyte and identified her confession of faith as among the finest that one finds anywhere in the Old Testament, ranked up there with the confession of faith of Moses himself. In the New Testament, we meet Rahab several more times. We find her in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, and we discover that she became an ancestress of King David and eventually of Jesus himself. We meet her as a hero of the faith in James, And again in Hebrews, listen to what James has to say about her. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. She shows up in the hall of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen, verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. A heroine of the faith, and this is the way the early church understood her a picture of God's love, and a model of the faith. Now, I find this surprising. I find it surprising that a woman like Rahab ends up throughout the rest of the Bible showing up always in the most commendatory ways, always celebrated for her faith, because she's got a bunch of strikes against her, doesn't she? I mean, there's the lie, a bold-faced lie, and some people say she shouldn't have done that. She should have told the truth and trusted the results to God. Others said, well, she was in a rough place. She chose the lesser of two options. She should ask forgiveness, but God would certainly understand. But others have said, it's not a lie at all. Here's what St. John Chrysostom said about Rahab's deceitful words to the king's men. Oh, good lie. Oh, good guile. But that's only one strike. There's the fact that she's a woman in a very patriarchal culture. There's the fact that she's a Canaanite. You remember the Canaanites, they were the ones targeted by God for destruction. None of them were to be spared, and for good reason. If you read in the Old Testament about the activities of the Canaanites, you find out that they were idolatrous, they were quite immoral, all kinds of things going on like child sacrifice. We have no guarantee that Rahab herself didn't participate in these kinds of things. And of course, then there's her occupation. And people have been trying to find another job for Rahab ever since she enters into the picture. 
They've tried to get her a job as an innkeeper. They've tried to get her a job as a businesswoman who deals with foreigners. They've tried to at least improve the prostitution to where it's sacred prostitution as an act of worship. But frankly, the evidence suggests that she is what Tamara read her as being, which is a prostitute, a common streetwalker. This explains why she's referred to that way in the New Testament. This explains why she's not mentioned as having a husband. This explains why her home is situated on the margins of Jericho, on or in the wall. And this is probably why the men choose to go to her house, not because they want sexual favors, but because they want to remain invisible. But in spite of all those strikes against her, Rahab is celebrated throughout the history of Judaism and Christianity as a woman of faith. And it has a lot to do with what she says in her confession of faith in verses 9 through 13. Look there with me. It's a remarkable confession of faith for a number of reasons. One reason being her clear understanding of the sovereignty of God. She understands, first of all, that God is sovereign over the natural world. Look at verse 10. She understands that this is the God who parts the Red Sea and allows the Israelites to part, pass through. She understands that God is more powerful than the natural world. Second, she understands that God is more powerful than important people, like Sihon and Og. These are two Amorite kings that the Israelites encounter on their journey from Egypt to Canaan. They come out, play the aggressor, and Israel defeats them and takes over their land. Rahab knows this story, and she knows that God, this sovereign God, is not only greater than the natural world, but he's also greater than these great kings of the land. She understands that God is superior over nations. She knows, look at verse 9, she knows that God has already given her land, the land she grew up in, to the Israelites. And any God that can do that is a God who's sovereign over the national realms, right? But listen to what else she says. Part of her confession of faith, verse 11. She understands that this sovereign God is not only more powerful than the natural world, not only more powerful than important people and nations, she understands that this God the God of these spies is more powerful than any other God. There it is in verse 11. Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. One of the reasons why Rahab is celebrated as a model of faith is this clear vision she has, even this prostitute that she has of God's sovereignty. But she also understands that God is gracious. Look again at her confession. Look at verse 11. She refers to Yahweh as your God, that is, the God of the Israelites. Now, she knows enough about the Israelites to know they didn't have much to offer Yahweh. They were a group of slaves in Egypt. She understands that God has covenanted with these people, that God has graciously chosen these people, not for anything that they could give to him, but simply out of his grace, out of his mercy. She understood that. She understood that God was not only sovereign, but gracious. We see this a second way in that she recognizes that God would show kindness. There it is in verse 12. God would show kindness to her family. Now, the word show kindness is a Hebrew word. It's the word chesed. 
It's a very important word in the Old Testament because it refers to a kind of covenant love. In other words, here's what she's saying. Not only do I believe that this God is gracious enough to make a covenant with the Israelites, I believe that he will also show that same covenant love to me, a Canaanite woman. We see her understanding in a third way, and that has to do with the oath she makes the spies swear to her. She makes the spies promise that because she has shown kindness to them, they'll show kindness to her. You'll spare my life because I've spared your life. And then she makes them swear an oath to Yahweh. Now, I didn't see this at first, but, but then it occurred to me. What she is saying is something important for us to see about Yahweh. What she's saying is that Yahweh is a God who cares about the oath, about fairness, about justice, even justice to a woman like her. You tracking with me? Rahab understands something about God. She understands that not only is God sovereign, he is also gracious. This is a remarkable combination. If you were going to pick two attributes of God that could sum up all his qualities, I'd suggest these would be the two you'd pick. When the early church was drafting the words of what we know as the Apostles' Creed, guess which two attributes of God they chose to celebrate as most indicative of God's character? Well, here's what they said. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Well, there they are. Sovereign, Almighty, Gracious, Father, This is a remarkable confession of faith from a woman who was not schooled in the Hebrew way, who only hears it secondhand, and yet she understands that God is both sovereign and gracious. That's not an easy balance to keep. Rahab seems to keep it. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we're very good at seeing the sovereignty of God, so good, in fact, that we're too afraid to come to him with our problems. After all, what would a sovereign God care about me? And sometimes we're very good at seeing God as gracious, but not too good at seeing him as sovereign. So if we want to do something, we can't imagine God would have any problem with our being happy. You know, the trick of this Christian life is to keep those two attributes clearly in mind and keep them in balance. And Rahab does. And that's one of the remarkable things about this woman. That's one of the reasons why she's celebrated as a heroine of the faith because she understands God as sovereign and gracious and she keeps them in balance. But that's not all. She doesn't just confess her faith. She lives her faith. Faith is meant to be put into action. Isn't that what James tells us? Because if faith isn't put into action, a beautiful confession of faith is just words that die in the air. Faith has to be lived out or else it's dead. And Rahab's faith was just that kind of faith. It was lived out. Look at verse 9, again at verse 11. She repeats this idea that we believe so strongly, she and the Canaanites believe so strongly that God was sovereign. They were melting in fear. And she has a, a number of ways that she pictures that melting in fear. But they believed that God was sovereign and they were terrified in consequence. Rahab goes one step further. She not only is terrified of this Yahweh, she realizes, she makes the logical conclusion that if I am terrified for this foreign God, then this foreign God must be stronger than the gods I grew up worshiping. 
And so at some point, she forsakes the God she grew up worshiping to worship Yahweh instead. Now, this is a remarkable change. This is not like going from college church to Lakeview or Lakeview to college church. This is not like switching from being one denomination to another. It isn't even really for an American like switching from one religion to another. In the ancient world, your religion was closely connected to your identity as a person. What I find Rahab doing is truly remarkable, analogous to what we find Abraham doing. When he gets this call of God and says, everything I thought I knew about God must be wrong. This is right. And Abraham sets off, and so does Rahab. She puts her faith into action, not just trembling with fear, but actually taking a step toward God and trusting herself into Yahweh's hands. Now, I don't know when the switch occurs for Rahab. Was it before the spies came or when they first banged on her door? I don't know when Rahab makes the switch and sets aside her gods for the one true God. But I'll tell you this, when she told that lie, she had no promises in the bank from the spies. She had the kind of faith that she put into action with no safety net. No promises from the spies yet. That will come later. This is the kind of faith that Rahab demonstrates. This is the kind of faith that is celebrated. This is what it means to put our faith into practice. My question for us this morning is are we putting our faith into practice? I mean, it's important to have an, a, a right faith. Don't get me wrong. It's important to have a right creed. It's important to understand the truth about God. But that's only part of the way. Are we taking that next step of actually putting our faith into practice? Are we living our lives on a daily basis? Is our thought life even governed by what we say we believe? Because that's the crucial test. Christianity faces a lot of battles on a lot of battlegrounds around the world these days. Christianity is fighting for its life in the deserts of Syria and Iraq. Christianity is under fire in the public square. It's under fire in the Supreme Court. But the most strategic battlefield for Christianity right now is none of those places. The most strategic battlefield for Christianity is in the center of every Christian's heart. Am I living what I say I believe? I'm not trying to privatize Christianity and just make it about me and God. What I'm saying is that if Christians will actually live out what they say they believe, the rest of the world will have to take notice. The significance of those other battles pale in comparison to us actually living out what we say we believe. I believe that God is sovereign. Therefore, when the test results come with the negative news, I will trust God for what is ahead. I believe God is gracious, and so I know that even while I am in this dark night of the soul, unable to reconcile my circumstances with the love I thought God had for me, I will continue to trust in this God. This is faith in action, and this is what the world is dying to see. 
And Rahab shows us the way. I don't need to tell you that that's the kind of faith that makes a difference in this world. Made a difference in Rahab's world in the impact she had on the lives of other people. It's funny, her impact on these two spies is so profound, they abort their mission. Remember what Tamara said? Their job was to spy out the land, especially Jericho. Their first stop is Jericho. They get to Jericho, hear what they hear from Rahab, turn around and head back across the Jordan to Joshua. They don't need to go any further. What they heard from Rahab told them everything they needed to hear. They had all the information, all the reconnoitering was done with that one confession of faith. They knew that God had given them the land. Nothing else mattered. Look at verse 24. The report that the spies give to Joshua is almost a direct quote of Rahab, the prostitute. And Rahab's faith has encouraged Jews and Christians right up to the present moment. That's what faith in action does. It affects the faith of others. So my question for myself is, what difference is my faith having on anybody else? This is not a guilt trip. But what difference does your faith make to those around you? Is your faith affecting the faith of other people? Now, if I gave you time and space, you would immediately come up with names and faces of people whose faith has impacted yours, couldn't you? I think of Jack, guy who used to go to church here. He had Parkinson's disease. And by the time I met him, Jack was an older guy, confined to a wheelchair. He could barely speak. Somebody asked him, Jack, how do you cope? And he forced words out with great effort. And these were the words, Jesus makes it bearable. And Jack's faith affects me even now. I think of all the students that I have known in the decades that I've been teaching, young men and young women who have sensed the call of God in their lives and they have uprooted themselves and their families in many cases with children and they've gone off to study in preparation for the calling that God has placed on their lives and my faith is strengthened. I think of an old retired missionary. He's was serving with his wife in India and retired to our area and attended our church and and he was dying of cancer. I went with a friend and we visited him in his, in his room. We went to encourage Reverend Hansen, but every time we went, he blessed our lives by the grace that he found to die. Faith that's affecting others. Is my faith doing that for others? Second thing that Rahab's faith does is it saves lives. I mean, literally. Her faith saved lives. It saved the spies' lives. It saved her life. It saved the life of her family. And maybe our faith isn't going to have that kind of impact, but it'll have impact in saving lives in a much more profound and eternal significance. Let me put it this way. If we have a gospel that can take a hooker from the other side of the tracks, and turn her into a heroine of the faith, then we have a gospel that can change anyone, anywhere.
Amen? I mean, one of my prayers for this church is that you not forget that fact, that we have a transforming gospel that can change anyone, anywhere. There are no hopeless cases if this is true. Now, the implications of that to me are manifold. It means that every single one of us, everywhere we go, in our circumstances, at Walmart, at Meyer, in our work, wherever we are, every individual that we encounter, there is no hopeless case. We can bring the gospel to that person. We can't transform them, but the gospel can. We need to go with that kind of confidence. There are some here in this church, perhaps young men and women, perhaps seasoned in the faith, whom God is calling into ministry. He has so gripped you with the power of this message that you feel you could not be content with any other calling than that the preaching and teaching of this message. If you're here and you're listening to my voice right now, listen to what I'm saying to you. This is worth giving your life for. Some of us have Rahabs in our family. People we've given up on, or almost given up on. We've tried, we've said what we could say, we've prayed, we've been praying. Nothing's happening. The word of the Lord to you this morning is, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, make your request to God. There are no hopeless cases. And I can't help but think that there's a Rahab or two among us. I can't help but think that right now, in this church, there's a Rahab who imagines himself or herself too far gone. I mean, you like coming to church, it gives you a good feeling, but you really don't think this message of the gospel is for you. If, if we knew what you did, we wouldn't even want you here. That's what you're thinking. Boy, I'm glad Rahab didn't think that. Because God made a difference in her life. And there have been lots of Rahabs through the years. Multiple centuries later, in this very same town, there was a Rahab up a fig tree. A tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus whom Jesus looked up at and said, Zacchaeus, come on down. We're going to have lunch. There was that prostitute who came up behind Jesus so moved by the grace that he had shown to her that she could not contain her emotion and the tears just flowed on his feet mixed with the precious ointment from her jar. I just heard last week of a prostitute in Nepal who was watching the Jesus film and when she saw that scene, she was so gripped by the grace of God, she gave up her lifestyle and became a part of the church. If you're a Rahab here this morning, there's good news. There's no hopeless case. God has given us a faith that we must put into action. It must be the kind of thing that makes a difference. It makes a difference in the way it impacts others and strengthens their face. It makes a difference in the way we take that gospel into the world and really believe it can make a difference 
for anyone. And so my prayer for college church is that you never lose your grip on this transforming message. That you always make room in your hearts for Rahab's that you continue to encourage this message to go out into the community. Thank you for 22 wonderful years that you have nurtured us as a family.